Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Ballymore Cookery School online. Um, it's a great thrill to welcome everybody this evening. But of course, the greatest thrill of all is the fact that this evening we're going to have a conversation with the wonderful Claudia Roden. Claudia, it's lovely to see you and welcome. And it's only a pity that you're not here in person, sitting across the room in another chair from me. But not, we're, we're so thrilled to have you and thank you for joining us this evening. Well, it's a pleasure for me to be here. And you're looking very well. And you just told me a moment ago that you've had both shots of your vaccine. Yes, I've had the two. And so I'm free and I feel happy, joyful, but there's nowhere to go because everything is shut. And we are told to stay at home anyway. Of course. Well, it's wonderful. And I'm just thrilled to hear that. And before we go any further again, the room you're sitting in is clearly a book room or a library. And it's just so completely wonderful. And um, it says so much about you. And all of those books, are they all cookery books? All sorts of things? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't hear what your question was. I'm, I'm just admiring the, um, the, your book room, your library. Oh, yes. And, oh, yes. <laughs> and are those yeah. all cookery books? They're that... not all cookery books. Not all cookery books. Not all but cookery I books. do collect cookery books. Yes, of course. Yeah, because, you know, when I started, there were certainly no cookery books at all, not one single one, from where I come from. Yes. And there was hardly any. Yes. yes. And, Claudia, you were born in Cairo in 1936. Yes. And your father was a merchant, and your mother did not work outside the home, I believe. No woman worked outside the home <laughs> in my background. No, yes. women didn't work. Yes, and um, it seems to me that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that your family um, sort of straddled a curious blend of European niceties, which I believe was called um, Europeanized Egyptians, and then also sort of the local life in Cairo. Yes. Well, because Cairo, in my time, was a cosmopolitan country and there were uh, many minorities. Uh, there were Greeks and Italians and Turks and the royal family was of Turkish origin as well uh, and Armenians and Syrians and uh, so we could hear just walking in the street, different languages. We'd go to the grocer. The grocer was Greek always. And so, yes, and the lingua franca that people used when they went into a shop or the cinema was French. Yes, so we yes. We spoke French at home as well. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> but did it feel like a, um, a mixture of two uh, very different cultures? Did it feel like a mixture of the two very different cultures? Yes, uh, it was. And, but we didn't see it like that. We just yes. thought of us as just one culture that was very varied. And you know, when at school, yes, there were children from many different religions, different backgrounds. And when we came, they would ask, uh, what uh, religion are you? Everybody would put up their hand and say, uh, Christian Orthodox, Muslim, 
uh, Jewish, and everybody was proud to yes. be something or yeah. whatever. But there was, when you feel now there, this big tension in the Middle East, it wasn't there at all so, then. So and then they were, they were safe and happy in their own identity. And we were, I was at an English school. It was called the English School Cairo. And I just remember how the teachers would go around in the playground and shout at us, English only, English only, because we were speaking yes. many languages together, you know, going from one to the other, because we all uh, spoke more or less the same many languages. Wonderful advantage to be able yeah. to speak those languages. Yeah. And uh, when you were growing up, Claudia, um, who cooked in your house? How did that work? Who cooked? Yes. Well, uh, I had an Italian Slovene nanny, and uh, she came uh, before I was born, before my older brother was born, so she was always in our life. And uh, she cooked for us when we were very little. And then, uh, so her food was, Slovene Italian, a bit like it was near Trieste, where the village, where her village was. She came from a village, uh, and uh, uh, and then the cook cooked. Uh, the cook came from Upper Egypt, from a village, and uh, uh, he learned how to cook all our food from my mother, and then he cooked. Uh, and we, my mother would cook for special occasions, uh, as well as him, uh, when we had we were entertaining, and we did entertain quite a lot. But she only cooked certain things that were very delicate. <laughs> yeah. And then she passed on the skills to to the cook who did them on a daily basis. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and what sort of things did the, the family eat just on you know on for day to day meals? What was the sort of format? Did, was breakfast a thing? Did you... How? Um, so did you all start off the day by many families starting and having breakfast at the table? Yes, uh, we did. I mean, when we were small, we just ate in another room next to, off the dining room, between the kitchen and the dining room with my nanny. And she would make a whole lot of uh, things that were her kind of things. And then, yes, we would have breakfast in the, in the dining room and uh, we'd go off to school. The school bus would come and fetch us and uh, we would go down and uh, yes. And when we came home, well, we waited for my father to come back from work and he would come back from, yes, where it was the bazaar. Yes. He was a merchant still. And he was, yes, uh, he would arrive and then the, um, the cook would, uh, would bring meze. And we'd sit in the balcony and we'd watch the felucas, those are the boats, uh, uh, sort of gliding along the Nile and he would bring all the messes that we know here, but yes. the very simple ones, yes. um, including, including hummus, as you think. Oh, well, but, well, uh, and so we would, uh, we would, as children, 
we would have Coca-Cola maybe or something. Yes, a treat. We like would have a, a drink. Yes. We would have raki or a whiskey. Uh, and then we'd have dinner. And uh, But when we entertained, because life in Egypt was very much about entertaining, because there wasn't very, very much uh, to do, uh, we all, well, we all, a certain class of people, uh, belonged to clubs. And they were English sporting clubs. And uh, where you could, you play tennis, and there was golf, and there was, and swimming. And I was swimming. I was a national swimmer, even. You were a swimming champion. What was, what stroke were you a champion in? In backstroke. Backstroke, how fantastic. Um, you're full yeah. of surprises, Claudia. But one of the things you spoke, I wrote quite a bit about, was the etiquette of the table and how important that is. Yes, yes. because, well, uh, I was giving that as an example of things that we did was to go to the club. And we did go to the cinema. And sometimes when an opera came from Italy, the grown-ups would go to the opera. But apart from that, we entertained. And we entertained each other. And it was what life was about. It was yes. about really hospitality and uh, and being having a good big table yes and, so and the thing is you would uh, make hundreds of things yes uh, and i'm sorry to say that the entertaining in my family was apart from festivities when people came to because it was a religious festival yes. or a big event the way they entertained was that people played cards. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> and all, all the people we knew just played cards. And uh, when uh, they played cards, well, they hired little table, card tables to fill the whole house. And then there was this big table. Uh, they enlarged it with, full of food because people stopped to eat. Yes, and how I wonderful. But you probably mean that I said that how you were supposed to not throw yourself on the food. Yes. And people would come and they look at all these things, a lot of meses and big meat dishes, big rice dishes, all kinds of things, and the desserts. And because we're several uh, cooks from different families joined up to help to cook as well. But the people would come and everyone would say, I've already eaten, thank you. Oh, you know? that was <laughs> part so of the etiquette. Yes, yes. You know, you keep saying, please, please do come. And, yes. And they ate as little as they could. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, yes, that uh, uh, you, the people would force food on people, on their yes. guests. Yeah. But the guests uh, had to uh, hold back. Yes. And that was also when you visited, you know, I would visit the older people of the family. The whole family would come and sit in a big circle. I was in a very big extended family where, you know, one of my aunts, my, my father was one of 11 and one of his aunts 
had 18 children. Right, you know, okay, they yes. Were big families yes. on both sides. Yes. And you would go there and as a child and as everybody, you had to go and kiss everybody in the whole circle. And then you'd sit down. Wonderful. Yeah, and I always say the older people would wash themselves in rose water. Yes. So you, you'd enjoy kissing them. <laughs> yeah, lovely. Well then, Car well then uh, Claudia, it must have been a huge shock to you then when at the age of 15 you moved to Paris. Because coming from that huge sort of family yeah. unit, an extended family, and yeah. the way your life turned out at that time, and explain a little, you, you moved to Paris. Yeah, and before Paris, I came for three months to an English school here. Yes. To, uh, I was 15 to do my last exams. Yes. Of, um, uh, uh, what do you call them now? Baccalaureate, are they... We call it the leaving cert, I, I, I think. I was too young to do them. It's the exam people do at 16 or something. Yes. But anyway, I did my exam, so I got my my British exam. <laughs> I didn't do AA level. It was the first thing. And yes. then I went to Paris. Yes. And in England, for the first three months, it was a boarding school. And I was completely... It's a, totally another world. A lot of the girls were just being, it was a girls' boarding school, waiting to be, um, uh, what do you call it, to the queen. Oh, they were, yes, um, yes, I, I can't think of the expression, presented. Yes, presented. Presented, exactly. And, and then, <laughs> so everybody didn't care about learning anything. So it was all about deportment and all yeah. of that sort of thing. They were all into horse riding and things and what they were going to wear. The clothes yes. they were going to buy for the balls. They were all going to have a ball. Yes. So I was sort of, it was another world, totally, but but interesting. And yes. so I got to, to learn about English school food <laughs> at boarding school. But then in Paris, it was a big lycée. And, uh, uh, and for me, it was a, a fantastic three years. Yes. Uh, first of all, because it was... Not long after, it was in 1952, at the end of 51. Yes. And uh, uh, it was not long after the war. Yes. So it was a very serious uh, time where people were, girls of my age were all into politics. All young people were thinking of what kind of world do we want after what's happened. Yes. And uh, so there was this, you know, there was the communist club. The, uh, they were at the school, at the lycée. Yes, I was we remember. Who were boarders. There were few boarders. And we lived in a villa in the Bois de Boulogne. Okay, and lovely. And the school was, we would go from a, on a bus to the boarding school. Uh, and the day school was where there was all this, uh, music and literary club and politics, so it was wonderful. And every weekend I could go out, and, and I went out and, and hung around Paris for three years, and stayed <laughs> wherever I could, wherever any day girls could let yes. us stay the night. I was and with two brothers. <laughs> yes, was there a moment when you were in Paris? I mean, did you go to restaurants? Did yeah. yes, we always. 
The thing is, we couldn't afford much, so we went to all the students' restaurants. Yes. But still, they were good. Yes. And when you think they had just been occupied, uh, to think that people still wanted to eat well yes, at the yeah. time, yes. and and we would go. My brother, one of my older brother, was a medical school, a medical student there, and he was staying in a little. Uh, 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 student hotel. Now it's become a boutique hotel now. Yeah, of course. But it was full of students and I would stay, he was there for a year, I would stay there with a younger brother as well. We would sleep uh, in his room or next 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 to it. Yes. And um, yes, and we would meet a whole lot of young people and we were always eating out. And yes. that was sort of a Fantastic experience. Yeah. So then, then you moved back to London. Yeah. And when you moved back to London, you went to art school. Was that immediately? Yes, to uh, St. Martin's Art School. Yes. And uh, that was also, for me, a fantastic time. I was there just for two years. And during that time, I was in a flat with my two brothers. And I was cooking there for them yes. and our friends. And that time for me was when I started cooking, and I was uh, I was uh, popular for no for that of, of course that, because people remember now. I still have friends from those days, yes. and they say we remember your stuffed vine leaves, <laughs> your stuffed vegetables. Of your course filo. they do. You know, I was doing things that nobody had ever ever seen. Yes. And, you know, you couldn't buy uh, Philo then. Yes. It didn't exist, except in a place in Camden Town or Kentish Town. Yes. So, um, and then was your cooking based on nostalgia at that stage, do you yes. think? Yes. Yes. And in, in France, I also, uh, for me, when I say I started my book, my first book, which isn't quite true, but I used to go to a cousin in Paris yes. who had just married and uh, he was a journalist and every Sunday he would make full mesdames. Yes. Full mesdames was a, a broad beans, dried broad bean dish. And this was sort of the national dish of Egypt. And in Egypt, we would eat it outdoors, really, in the street. Uh, but there, every Sunday, we would go and we would, he would make it out of a tin. It means he didn't really cook, but yes. it was a whole ritual of the beans. And you also cooked a hard-boiled egg to go with it. And the, you dressed it with olive oil and garlic and lemon juice and you made a little chopped salad to go with it. And then you would eat it also as a ritual. You would cut the hard-boiled egg and the broad beans, and you started by squashing them a bit. But for me, this was really the joy of joys, remembering yes. what I missed from Egypt. Yes, yeah. Incredible, yes, the richness that you missed. You, you said that because um, I'd like to talk about many of your books, but um, of course um, we must talk about um, 
uh, your book of um, Middle Eastern food. And you said that was, you think that maybe Elizabeth David's Mediterranean cooking, that book had inspired you to write this? Uh, well, the, the Middle Eastern was my first book. Yes, yes. But yeah. that, that um, Elizabeth David had been something, had, had been somewhat of an inspiration. Well, the, the book happened because uh, after two years at art school, my, it was 1956, and uh, the Jews had to leave Egypt. They were forced to leave Egypt. With they, my parents had two weeks' notice to leave, yes. and leaving everything behind and arriving in a hurry. In a in shock into and London. We arrived to London. Yes, and so uh, yes, I this I uh, of course didn't stay at art school, and I went to work at Alitalia. Yes, uh, the uh, airlines because I spoke Italian, one of the languages that we spoke in yes. Egypt, and um, uh, so at that time we had hundreds and hundreds of Egyptian refugees coming into our life. They were all my relatives who were gradually coming. They didn't all come in two weeks. They came gradually over several years. I mean, they did come quickly, but they didn't all come to London. Some of them went to France, some of them to Paris. They went where they could go and then they weren't always allowed to stay. They had to ask for, uh, uh, they were asylum seekers. Yes. In those days, it wasn't so dramatic because people did accept them more easily, of course. Yes. And, but so, so for quite a few years, I was inundated in our lives in London, uh, first at my parents and even when I had my own home and I had married, uh, we were seeing all these people who were from Egypt. And what happened very early on, uh, that I noticed that people exchanged recipes. Yes. And they asked each other for recipes. And, uh, and the thing is, they didn't have the same recipes, because uh, the Jewish community in particular, apart from all these minorities, the Jewish community itself was like a mosaic from people, families from all over the Ottoman world who yes. had come to Egypt when the Suez Canal was built and the Ottoman Empire was crumbling. Egypt had become the uh, golden place to come to for, for merchants, but for everything. Yes. For the cotton trade, it was the booming place. And so they had come at the end of the 19th century, but they had all kept their food traditions. Yes, of course. And so uh, what was happening, uh, people were saying, I'll never see you again. And we didn't see each other again, mostly. Gosh. We were had been a very close-knit community, seeing each other all the time. Yes, uh, yes. Knowing yeah. each other, and suddenly we were never going to see each other again. Yes. And so people would say, give me your recipe for yes. that cake, yes. and I'll always remember you when yes. I eat it. Oh, that's very so beautiful. It became that. 
Yes. And was there a moment when you consciously thought, I've got to put these all together? Exactly. Yes. And because we had not a single cookbook, not a single recipe right. was printed. Yes. We didn't know if we would ever eat the kind of foods that we we knew. And the thing is that uh, the, there hadn't been uh, a cookbooks and food recipes were handed in in the family. Yes. By word, by word. Yes. And actually, some people had them written down in a little notebook. And people would just hand them to their daughter, not even to their daughter-in-law. Yes. They yeah, wanted um, to keep it to their daughter. Yes. And um, that is what, in a way, was the source of my book, was yes. all the people. I somehow thought, uh, it's our legacy, and it's yes. who we were. And, yeah. and this is the one thing I can do that's worth doing. Yes. With uh, collect. Yes. Uh, Rachel Cook, the journalist, uh, wrote um, in the Guardian newspaper in 2012, and she said, and I quote, a book of Middle Eastern food has always seemed to me to be one of the greatest literary expressions of homesickness ever written. So it is about, yes. yes. And then... And, uh, yes, and I think... I think in the book, the first thing that I say when, um, let me see, I'm sort of embarrassed now. I've got this introduction of 1968. My compilation of recipes is the joint creation of numerous Middle Easterners who, like me, are in exile, either forced and permanent or voluntary and temporary. It is the fruit of nostalgic longing for and delighted savouring of a food that was a constant joy of a life in a world so different from the Western one. Yeah, that, And that... I say an Arab saying, he who has a certain habit will have no peace from it. And the dancer dies and does not forget the shaking of his shoulders applied to us. I was very dramatic. No, it's wonderful. It's <laughs> complete. We were really and the thing is when i was collecting the recipes people were so passionate about the recipe they gave yes and they were telling me how when they cooked it who loved it how and then they would say where it was from well that's I very mean, that's important because uh, and another uh, quote about the book from paul levy in the literary review and he said this is one of those rare cookery books that is a work of cultural anthropology. And Mrs. Roden's standards of scholarship are so high as to ensure that it has a permanent value. And cultural anthropology has been woven through all of your books. Yes. Well, I think uh, that, you know, I felt always the value of a recipe was huge because the people who gave it to me, they gave me something that was to them the greatest gift so for me, a yes. recipe isn't something that just comes from the internet, you know. Yes. It came from their, heart, their soul or their heart. But because I, people were telling me, this is from my grandmother in Izmir. This is from something from Istanbul. People told me about where they came from. Yes. And I also realized that everybody was saying baklava was... Uh, 
theirs from <laughs> Iran, from Iraq, from and so I realized that there was a connection uh, that dishes moved and so on. Yes. But I think when I really became interested in the ethnography, I didn't realize it was ethnography. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but when I went to the British Library looking for a book of Arab cooking, because we were desperate to learn more, to find more, and the librarian said, come tomorrow and I'll have a list. And when I came, he had no contemporary cookbook. How extraordinary, cookbook, yeah. Or of the Middle East at all. Yes. In the British Library from any country. And the, all he had were, uh, uh, they had their um, manuscripts of the 13th century of Arab cuisine. Yes. And he also had two um, publications. They were by scholars. One was a scholar, a, a British scholar, Professor Arbery, mm-hmm. who had found a cookery book in Baghdad. He called it the Baghdad cookery book. And he translated all the recipes from the 13th century. And some of them dated back earlier. And, uh, but he had put poems and stories and things in, in his, to describe the time. Yes. And another, a Frenchman, who I think had the biggest influence on me, called Maxime Rodinson. He was a a sociologist, uh, a French sociologist, and uh, he was, uh, during the war, he was in the French army in Syria. And he he was, uh, because the war started while they were there, Syria was then uh, protectorate of France. Yes. He was, uh, all the armies outside of France were told, don't come because they were occupied. And so he was stuck in Damascus for several years and he decided to do his PhD. And he went and he found a document uh, of a Syrian cookbook from the 13th century. Good Lord. And he, as a sociologist, wrote a sociological, it was like his PhD or something. Yes, yeah. uh, About how can you tell from this cookbook about uh, this society of the time. And then he talked about, you could see that it was a court cuisine. Yes. And what kind of court and what kind of trade, what kind of all kinds of things. Yes. And I really thought, yes, this is what food as well. And I just felt everything that I ever learn I want to pass on. Yes. I have this burning thing. Well, all of your books have the, uh, all of them, the common thing that they transport you. You know, it's not just a recipe, uh, recipes for a dish. It's a transportative um, experience, really. I mean, you know, it's a yeah. magic carpet. That's a bit of a, a cliched word to use, but it, it's a magic, magic carpet. I'm going to ask you, Claudia, if you wouldn't mind, because I'd love you to read a tiny little bit, if you don't mind. Um, which I've picked out um, because I'm sure people who are listening would love you would love yeah. to hear your voice saying your words and just read as little yeah. or as much as you want. So I think you're going okay. to read a little about Kibe. About Kibe, yes. 
So Kimbe, I don't know how to read well, but you will excuse me. I'm sure you read beautifully. Kimbe is the great love of the inhabitants of the Fertile Crescent. It is the national dish of Syria and Lebanon, and Iraq boasts of dozens of kuba. There are innumerable versions of this family of dishes that epitomize the food of the area. Kibbe is said to have been mentioned in ancient Assyrian and Sumerian writings and to have been served to King Ashur Nasebal too. I didn't put the date, I should have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but today, the daily life of the people revolves around its preparation, a dramatic ritual the pounding of the meat and wheat, because that's what it is, in a stone or metal mortar with a heavy metal pestle is a sound that wakens one in the morning and lulls one to sleep in the afternoon. A sound instantly provoked by the arrival of an unexpected guest or a ring of the doorbell. Wonderful. Wonderful. I know of no other dish whose preparation is enveloped by such a mystique. Some women are known to have a special hand <laughs> uh, 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 or finger to make kibbeh. This snack is envied by other women and especially by their husbands. One is said to be favored by the gods if one is born with a long finger, which makes the shaping of kibbeh easier. First, I have to explain that Lebanese kibbe are more stocky, round balls, yes. round ovals. But Syrian, especially from Aleppo kibbe, is like a long torpedo. And you really have to have a long finger ah. to be able to uh, dig into that pot that you're making because, uh, because the favorite and the most prestigious kibbeh is a stuffed kibbeh. Yes, of course. It is, uh, uh, it is uh, a shell of pounded, uh, pounded um, um, uh, wheat and pounded bulgur and, and meat. And inside it is fried onions, fried minced meat with all kinds of spices, sometimes pine nuts, occasionally raisins and deep fried. Delicious. Now, this is Have the one. ideal. Now, Egypt was not Syria, but in my father's district, where it was like a little Syria in Cairo, that is what life was. You would hear the, the, the pounding. pounding yes. Of course, now we do it all in a blender. Yes, and yes. It's much easier. Yeah. But for me, this... Uh, uh, also, I remember the thing about who made a fine, you had to make a very fine shell and a long one. And you know, I had gave cookery courses once in my house. Yes. Before I came to, to Bali Malu to teach. And I was teaching how to make kibbe. Uh, and telling them it has to be long and thin. And, and there was uh, an American girl who was there on the course, and she devised a way of making it by making a flat thing, a uh, flat oblong yes. on, on a plate, 
and then putting the filling inside and then closing it. Yes. And so I brought it to one of them that she made to my father who lived nearby and my parents lived nearby. And I've, I, I said, look, this is how she made it. We didn't need to have a long finger. For all of that time. Then, I'm sorry, but it's cheating. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> he didn't want to know that. That's a wonderful story. Claudia, we could talk about Middle Eastern cooking actually for a week, but I'd lo- I want to talk about some of your other books. And I'd love to talk about um, um, the Book of Jewish Foods, which you, you've described as being really a kind of a, it could have been a, a whole lifetime of work. Uh, it's yeah. a sort of an extraordinary um, a work. And a f- you've said a few curious things. For example, you said once at, um, when you were presenting at the Oxford Symposium in, on Fooding some time ago, you were giving a talk entitled Israel, a Changing Mosaic. And you said there's really no such thing as Jewish foods. Local regional food becomes Jewish when it travels with Jews to new homelands. I should interject by saying that this book, of course, was highly decorated. And you and your books have won so many uh, awards all over the world, you know, that goes without saying, I think. Yes, it had nine awards in the end because it got a recent one as well, no, a few years ago in Israel. Yes. For the food, that the influence on the chefs yes. in Israel. Uh, but yes, uh, I did, when uh, I did think the Jews didn't have of their own cuisine and that we never knew what was ours anyway. Uh, but I thought, yes, it is the food that they eat um, wherever their homeland is and they bring it somewhere else. And then it was Jill Norman, who was at Penguin Books, who asked me uh, to do the book. And I said, no, there's no such thing. But then I became interested and then I became obsessed yes. with finding more and more Jewish dishes. And I wouldn't give up yes. until I was forced to give up after six, 15 years and then <laughs> by my American publisher who had taken over yes. uh, the, the pressure. By then they wanted the book. Yeah, saying, give it to me anyway. I said, no, there's some more. There will be some more. And so she said, you just make it your odyssey and it's what you do. And now when I've traveled sometimes or even when I've done, given a talk and before people would always tell me when I was researching it, there's no such thing as Jewish food. But then once I did it, people were always telling me, you forgot oh, Jews yes. of Afghanistan. Yes. And I've got actually the Jews of Holland. And I have written a whole new chapter and with the Jew, with the, for the Jews of Holland. Yes, and yeah. they've got it in their Dutch edition. Yes. With all their recipes. How and wonderful. the same, I have got more French ones of the Algerian community. Because I thought the Moroccans do better food than the Algerians. Yes. So it was enough to do the Moroccan Jews. Yes. But no, there was Algerian Jewish that was special. Yes. So I was forced to add that. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's an astonishing work. Actually, before this evening's um, uh, talk, I don't know if you can see, but I went out to the garden. It's pouring rain here. It's been pouring rain for a month. But anyway, 
uh, to pick a few little crocuses which are bravely just uh, coming up and showing their little sort of saffron um, uh, stigmas just sort of poking out. I thought they were kind of a, I thought it was an appropriate flower to have sitting on top of a book of, 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 of your stack of books. Anyway, there you go. Um, so uh, have, does the, have, did you find being a cookery writer, was it a precarious profession at any stage? Sorry, did you? Did being I a cookery say? writer, was it a precarious position to, to be, be in writer. it? Yes, it was precarious. Mm. And I also, uh, I also was a single mom with right. three children yes. and unsupported, totally unsupported. So I had to earn. Yes. And it was lucky that when, uh, uh, because I, I became, yes, um, I was asked by magazines and newspapers. I have to say that I had to go knocking at doors to ask to, to write for magazines and publications. But they did take me on because there was no one writing about the Middle East. Yes. And so I did have, uh, and I did uh, get also um, wonderful, um, uh, uh, how do you say, well, I was asked, for instance, for the Telegraph to go to 15 cities. Yes. And, uh, and first of all, I was asked by the Sunday Times to uh do the regional food of italy yes um wonderful wonderful before that trips. yes i well before that i i started traveling uh and was involved in a mediterranean cooking or yes. rather a, a television series yes um but because i was asked to travel um that helped me to research but Yes, I, I really managed to also by doing giving cookery classes at home. Yes. Was how um, I managed to finance myself. Yes. A couple of things. Um, I, I sometimes wonder when I'm reading um, your books, particularly about Middle Eastern cooking, about the prime cuts of meat. I, just, I, I wonder what happened to the prime cuts of meat, the, you know, the sirloin the or the fillers. Yes. Of meat. Yes, because sometimes they're not so mentioned, really. Yeah, the prime cut of meat. Are you talking about lamb or beef? Because I, there was much beef. Either, in, really. Yeah, either. Well, uh, uh, well, the slow roasted shoulder of lamb yes. and the slow roasting. That is the Middle Eastern way. Yes. I mean, the Middle Eastern way, there was... Uh, in many communities, a whole baby lamb was cooked. Yes. They often stuffed with stuffing, which is rice with pine nuts or pistachios and onions and, and gentle spices, not hot spices. Yes. But uh, yes, they would roast, um, they would be the big roasts. Uh, yes, and there was also uh, what was in. Um, there weren't restaurants. There was no restaurant trade in the Middle East, mm -hmm. partly because women didn't go out with their husbands for dinner. Uh, the men would go and have meze and come yes. home to yeah. eat. And so, but there was a tradition 
of kebab houses was the first thing that was. And it's still mainly all the Middle Eastern restaurants are really kebab houses with, with meze to start with. Yes. And now they're bringing in other things. But so kebab was grilled meat. Yes. But so maybe in that's... the home, people, the, the equivalent of the kofta kebab was fried minced meat with yes. fried onions and spices and so on. Yes. And you might put it on a bed of aubergines and, and yogurt mixed yes. together. So Delicious. there was uh, the home cooking was always there. Yeah. And really, this is why I only knew home cooks. All my research was home cooks of the Middle East. Yes. There were no. Yes. Well, I've had the, good, the great good fortune to cook beside you a couple of times when you visited us here at the school. And a couple of things particularly struck me. For example, one day you were making a boiled carrot salad at one of the classes and you chose particularly a table knife, you know, not particularly sharp knife that you'd use at the table as distinct from a chef's knife to chop the carrots. And I was thinking about this and it without doubt affected the texture of the chopped carrots and hence it would affect the flavour. And I've often wondered, um, you know, uh, how, how you sort of feel about that. Do you, do you know what I mean? Uh, yes, uh, yes. The thing is, I know Allegra McEvity came to my house once and she said, well, because she's big on knives, she wrote a whole book on knives, and she said, what is your favourite knife? And I showed her a little knife. You know. <laughs> she said, Claudia, are you mad? You know? <laughs> and uh, yes, uh, yes, I think now I have learned from chefs how to improve on no, the but, food. And, but yes. I think, I think to me, that the choice of that sort of blunt knife was the correct knife for the texture of the dish. And I, I really believe this because I've, you know, I've, I've traveled a lot in North Africa and Morocco and I've seen a lot of um, uh, people cooking in their own homes, women cooking in their own homes, using not, they don't use chefy equipment. And there's a sort of a, I could get in trouble for saying this, but there's sort of a femininity to some of the food because it's not sharp and edgy and chefy. Does that make sense? Is that nonsense? Uh, no, it does make sense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, what I found is, for instance, in Morocco now, it was always women who were cooks, and yes. it still is. Yeah. And I went, actually, when I was traveling, I went to a cookery school, and they were all women mm. uh, and uh, and and um, the teachers were all had been slaves because they still had slaved until not long ago that's right yes yes black slaves that had come from and they were the cooks in families and then now they are the the teachers in the cookery schools and they are the cooks in restaurants as well but uh what is interesting is if you go into a restaurant kitchen, they're all women. But the chef, the manager, is a man. Yes. If you go to Turkey, they are only men. And until recently, they didn't allow a woman in a professional kitchen to set foot. Yes. Well, I've eaten in those wonderful... Now, um, it's, still, now it's a lot of women are, are having their own restaurants. Yes. Well, there's that wonderful restaurant, I'm sure you've eaten there, called Al Fasia in Marrakesh 
where all of the cooks are all of the cooks are women. Um, Claudia, somebody, we've got a question from one of our, our lovely teachers here, uh, wondering uh, this: uh, what is your favourite savoury dish and what's your favourite sweet dish? Or is that an impossible question? A favourite dish? Yes. It's an impossible question. <laughs> uh, now, actually, I've just finished a book where I suppose they're my favourite dishes are in there, but I never could answer. But, uh, but yes, today I sent off my manuscript, oh, what, or rather what, the proofs, it's what, all finished. What is this book going to be, Claudia? It's, a medit a new, it's called MED. MED. But Fan it's M-E-D. And when but, will... Because that's what they wanted to call it. But yes, I think my favourite dish, it's very difficult because I have cooked thousands. Yes. And each time I start a new book, whether it's in Spain or when it was Italy, I was discovering, and this, I just think this is what I want to eat yes. forever. Yes, I know exactly so what you mean. Very difficult. Yes, but yes. Let's yeah. say maybe the ones that are uh, I feel affectionate about are the ones of my family yes. that bring that are nostalgic. And yes, of what course. I could say is, you know, nearly all the recipes that I have. have or have become famous, or now yes. everybody knows them better than me. But Claudia, I mean... But, but you... one that nobody is making, except I think Sami Tamimi did it in his last book, is uh, konafa. Yes. Konafa is these, and I think they are using that a lot in um, uh, Honey and Co. Yes. It is these very fine, uh, shredded or rather like very fine vermicelli. Yes, like a like a, a, a pastry. Like, yes. like Kadafi. Kadafi, yes, and exactly. That, that we made it stuffed with a cream. But Claudia, uh, you're having difficulty remembering what your favourite dish is, but none of us have any difficulty remembering the favourite dishes of yours that we cook all of the time. Because, you know, you've given us so many dishes that we adore, not just for I us think, here in Cork, yeah. for, for people all over the world. And yeah. we could go on talking, not just for hours, but for weeks, but we don't have time. Okay. And it's, it's been such an absolute pleasure. We only sort of barely, we didn't even tip the, tip the top of the iceberg in terms of the, the breadth and depth of what it is that you have written about and cooked. But thank you for the words and thank you for the pleasure. And I hope we'll see you in Cork soon, as soon as we are all allowed to do that again. And I send you much love and thank you for all the joy that you've given to us and to cooks all over the world. Thanks so much, Claudia. Thank you. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.